Father God, uh, thank you once again for giving us opportunity to uh, study your word and to learn. And Father God, I pray that uh, after the session or the study, uh, we can uh, meditate and um, apply it in our lives. And Father God, I pray also for the listeners that this video will be blessed for them and apply in their lives. Lord, thank you so much for for your word that being a light of our uh, daily lives. And thank you so much in all this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. This time we're doing, hopefully, verses 5 through 12. Uh, we did 5 last time, but we're going to review it a bit just so that it's fresh in our minds. Um, I'm only promising that we get through verse 9, and I, I hope we even get that far, but hopefully through verse 12. Uh, so these verses, who is the one who comes, uh, who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. It is the spirit who testifies because the spirit is the truth. <clears throat> so this is the third statement we have of uh, that is similar to this in John. He says that God is love. He says that God is light. Here he says that the spirit is truth. And he's going to make the argument in verse 10 uh, that if we have the testimony of man, the testimony of God is better. Uh, and that's because God is truth. God cannot act outside of his character, which is truthful. Uh, but he's got three testimonies he's dealing with here. He says, by the blood, by the water, and by the spirit. And these are, uh, I guess, hotly debated about uh, what these testimonies mean. Um, some say that the water and the blood is his incarnation, his human birth, uh, but this doesn't seem to fit the context as well. Um, however, he, he has been arguing in here that um, Jesus is the son of God, but he's also uh, human. He is a man, but he is uh, God incarnate. So that is, yeah. Uh, Rowena is asking to come in. She's waiting. Okay, she's in. Uh, but what seems to be John's concern here is the testimony of Christ, the testimony to his um, incarnation, to his deity incarnate. Um, and so his deity incarnate doesn't prove his deity incarnate. He needs a testimony to that incarnation um, and that incarnation for his purpose, uh, which is to uh, die for the sins of the world, to be that perfect sacrifice that John has um, spoken of elsewhere. Uh, so what I have uh, come to the conclusion through uh, my research in this passage is that the blood speaks of his atoning sacrifice that the water speaks of his baptism that confirmed his earthly ministry, and that the spirit is the spirit by which he performed miracles, which proved that he was the Messiah. Uh, so I'm going to show you uh, some of those verses here, but we're going to start with uh, the witness of Christ's blood, because uh, to be quite fair, that's the most important for us. 
that's the one that we rely on because we're not first century Israel. Um, so all of these testimonies do confirm that he is who he said he is, but this is the testimony which has lasting effect on us today. And I think that's why John is, is starting with that and he's emphasizing uh, that witness of the blood uh, here. So in Revelation 1.5, which is also written by John, so we want to start with uh, what else John has to say on a similar note. He says, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. This is the importance of his blood. And John has talking, uh, talked about it earlier in his epistle about how we are uh, made sons of God through uh, his blood. Well, here he says we are released from our sins by his blood. This is something that only Jesus Christ was able to do. This proves his deity. Revelation 5, 9 says, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Now, this is a faithful witness that John is hearing. He is hearing uh, this angel in heaven proclaim what Christ has done by his sacrifice. This is a witness to who he is, that he is the God-man. In Revelation 12, 11, uh, we see this testimony as well by angels. It says, they overcame him because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even when faced with death. Now, this has that same word that we have in John's epistle, that we overcome by the blood of Christ. Uh, so here later on, John's theology, you could say, was confirmed uh, by later revelation. It doesn't change from book to book, uh, but what he understood of Christ's atoning sacrifice was reconfirmed later in the book of Revelation when he received that witness uh, from God. All right, but let's go back in our book of First uh, John and see what he has had to say earlier. Uh, he says, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sins. Now, this is speaking of our progressive sanctification, our second tense salvation, which keeps us in fellowship with him. That not only was his blood good for the beginning of our salvation, but it sustains us throughout. It's always the basis upon which we rest, and he is the only one who is able to provide uh, this foundation for Christian fellowship, so that his deity made it possible for him to be a man who provides a perfect sacrifice for man, uh, because man, all being children of Adam, are incapable of providing their own atoning sacrifice. But since Jesus Christ did that, it is good for um, all of the sins of the world, not just those committed before we were Christians, uh, not just those by Christians, 
but for all sins, Jesus Christ has paid that sin debt. And this is one that I have uh, been wrestling with the last couple of months. Um, Charlie knows. Um, I'm coming back a bit towards the, uh, the idea that it is uh, that the new covenant has a relationship to the church. Um, but I, I do hesitate to say that it shares a relationship with the church. Um, it might seem like it's uh, nuance there, but I think nuance can be important. Uh, the new covenant is a Jewish covenant. It is given to the Jews, it is for the Jews, and it will be fulfilled in, by, and through the Jews. Uh, but because we share the Savior who ratifies this covenant, we share in some of these blessings. These blessings are for Israel, uh, but they spill over, as it were, into the church because we share that same Savior. Uh, so you could say that there are similarities between the experience of the Christian and the new covenant for the Jews. Uh, but it is his blood shed for the sins of the world at the cross, which ratified that covenant for the Jews. So here in Matthew 26, verses 27 to 28, Jesus Christ in the upper room with his disciples have this, has this to say, he says, when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. We've got a chat here. Janet says, will you expand more about why it says they did not love their life, please? Yes, that was back a verse. This was back two verses. Yeah, I'm sorry. Oh, no, that's fine. I'm, I'm confused because no, why fine. they did not love their life. Uh, so this is speaking of martyrs during the tribulation period, which is a period distinct from the church age. Uh, there could be similar uh, exhortations to members of the church, but this will be a unique period in history um, in which martyrdom is... Uh, far more increased even than it is today, uh, because the wrath of Satan will be great on the earth at that time. Uh, but this is speaking of not only their uh, positional salvation, but their experiential salvation in the tribulation period. Um, so this is speaking of their salvation and their rewards. Uh, this is saying that they also persevered. Not only did they overcome by the blood of the Lamb, but resting in the blood of the lamb, they also overcame uh, that temptation to recapitulate and to uh, give in to uh, the Antichrist and his uh, persecutions. However, it's going to be a genocide, an eradication of Jews at that period. Uh, in fact, there are verses, I think it's in Zephaniah, which speaks of two thirds of the Jews being wiped out during that period. Uh, this is twice the percentage as Hitler wiped out uh, in the Holocaust. Hitler wiped out one-third of the Jewish nation. Um, so this will be a national genocide, so there won't really be much point 
for a Jew, which I think is the primary context here in Revelation 12, Jewish Christians. Um, there won't be much of a point for a Jew to recapitulate because he's going to be killed anyways. It's not just about um, the word of his testimony, but still he keeps the word of his testimony um, and so becomes a martyr. Uh, does that answer the question? Okay. Yeah, so it, it's about martyrdom during the tribulation period. Uh, all right. So we remember this is our definition of who the Messiah was or that messianic expectation. Uh, the Messiah is the anointed one of God. Uh, Messiah means anointed, anointed one, just like Christ in the Greek means anointed Christos. So the anointed one of God who was promised in the Old Testament to be a substitute sacrifice provided by God to pay for the sins of the world. And he did so by offering his own blood. Um, so this we get mostly uh, from seeing how Jesus Christ fulfilled these messianic uh, prophecies in the Old Testament, such as Isaiah 53, the suffering servant of Jehovah. Uh, so when we look back on Christ, we see that he perfectly fulfilled this expectation of the Jews. <clears throat> All right, but let's talk about some of the witnesses here. So we, we have seen a bit more detail about the witness of Jesus Christ's blood. Only he was able to take away sins by sacrificing um, himself or by laying down his life for us. And we have confirmation not only by angelic hosts, but by other heavenly hosts, uh, confirming that uh, Jesus Christ did successfully pay the price for our sins by dying on the cross. Um, so that is his testimony in the blood. But John re states here and now verses seven and eight are what's called a textual variant but they have pretty good um sourcing uh not sure the exact vocab for that uh, they have pretty good support uh, they are uh, supported by most uh, more recent manuscripts not by the older ones but by very trustworthy manuscripts um, so it makes it into most translations but some of the earlier uh, manuscripts don't have verses seven and eight. So it says, for there are three that testify, the spirit and the water and the blood, and the three are in agreement. So you see there's not much new information here. Um, it could be a scribe trying to uh, clarify for us, um, but it very well could be uh, the inspired word of God that was poorly uh, translated in some of the earlier scripts and then preserved in later ones. But that aside, doctrine doesn't change. Uh, here, it's just further clarification of that uh, three-part witness. Uh, and I'm going to come back to verse 9 after we look at some of these three-part witnesses. So first, um, why I think this um, has good support, not just in the, uh, in the textual variants, but also theologically is because uh, a three-part witness is a good, strong witness. Um, in Deuteronomy 17, under the Mosaic law, uh, Moses writes that on the evidence of two witnesses, 
for three witnesses. He who is to die shall be put to death, and he shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. What he is saying here is that more witnesses, be it two or three, are good witnesses, um, not just the testimony of one. And we'll see that there were three primary witnesses to Christ's incarnation as well, and his or his uh, messiahship, rather. Uh, <clears throat> three witnesses, two or three witnesses, are also um, advised for church discipline. Um, it says, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. Um, so this uh, shows greater support. Interestingly here, uh, in 1 John uh, 1, 1, John gives us three witnesses to his testimony. He says, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, and what we have looked at and touched with our hands. So he's giving us three senses for his proof uh, of uh, Jesus Christ and the message that Jesus Christ passed to him. He's got what they saw, uh, what they touched, and what they heard. Uh, and this was concerning the word of life. So John is concerned with preserving and relating to further generations of Christians, which includes us, that this is a trustworthy testimony. Uh, so that was the beginning of his book, and he's coming back to it um, at the end of his book to show us that everything that he has given to us here in his book is trustworthy, and it's words that we can live by uh, because it is a faithful witness. Um, but this is one that... Uh, Again, people don't always, some people think that the witness of water is Christ's human birth. I think that his witness by water was his baptism. Um, and I'll show you why here, because that was one of the confirmations of his messiahship and his earthly ministry uh, while he was on earth. Uh, so here in Matthew 3, verse 16, it says, after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of heaven said, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Um, so we've got that three-part witness here as well at Christ's baptism, confirming that he is the Son of God just as John is saying uh, in his uh, fifth chapter of his epistle. Um, he is saying that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that's the testimony to be believed, and it is attested to by the water. Uh, I believe he is speaking of this very instance where God himself speaks from heaven and confirms that he is his son um, at that moment of his baptism, and Janet says, uh, some believers say that believers must be baptized because Jesus was baptized. Will you expand on that, please? Uh, yes, believers should be baptized, but it's an obedience issue, um, not a salvation issue. Uh, most Christians try to make it a salvation, or not most. Um, those Christians who weigh heavily on baptism try to make it a salvation issue, uh, that salvation comes by baptism. Um, it doesn't. But just like Christ, Christ was obedient 
uh, in his baptism, he aligned himself with the Christian faith publicly or with the uh, testimony of John publicly. So we align ourselves publicly with the witness of Christ uh, when we are baptized. And this is a fellowship or, a, uh, or an obedience issue with the Christian. Um, if you don't get baptized as a Christian, um, if you make a conscious choice not to get baptized as a Christian, uh, it, may, uh, it may hinder your fellowship or your spiritual growth um, because it is an act of disobedience. We are supposed to be baptized. Um, but if it's something that opportunity has not uh, presented itself, uh, for instance, I spent probably four years trying to get baptized as a believer, uh, but I was in a reformed church that wouldn't perform believers' baptism. Uh, so I had a hard time getting baptized in a church. Uh, in fact, I wasn't even baptized until 2019. Uh, yeah, uh, but it did weigh on me. It is something that I felt called to do as a Christian to align myself publicly with that message, which I was proclaiming. Um, and because I wanted to share in that experience of the church uh, in the same way that we share communion together. Uh, this is a remembrance and this is a public testimony. Um, so I guess for now, that's, that's my uh, best expansion on that. Um, Yes, believers should get baptized, but it's not a salvation issue. Uh, but for Christ, he needed to be baptized to be aligned with the message that John was preaching because John's purpose was to prepare the way for the Messiah. Uh, those who had been baptized by John's baptism, uh, the repentance of Israel, were waiting for the Messiah that John would point to. And the one that John would point to uh, would be in alignment with his message. So here we have some of the Pharisees who came trying to uh, question John. They saw that he was gathering a big following. And in the, uh, in the Jewish Pharisaic uh, methods of the day, they went to test his message. They went to see, is he making a messianic claim? Does he claim to be the Messiah? Uh, because he is performing or he is gathering a large crowd and performing um, baptism. And baptism uh, wasn't unique to John back then. Baptism was something that was performed by other rabbis and uh, teachers of the day to align their disciples with their message. So they understood what John's baptism meant. Um, it wasn't a new phenomenon that John was dunking people in the Jordan and they wanted to go find out what that meant. They knew what it meant. They were aligning themselves with his message. So they were going to see what is his message. Um, so they said to him, who are you so that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? And John replies, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. As Isaiah the prophet said, uh, now this is a two-part uh, quotation. He takes part of it from Isaiah and part of it from Micah, uh, but the X or Malachi. Charlie, do you, it's Malachi, right? Yeah, it's Malachi chapter 4, I think. Malachi 4. Yeah, uh, I think it's Malachi 4.1. Make straight the way of the Lord. 
uh, or the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Um, he was the last of the Old Testament prophets, and he happened to come right at the beginning of the New Testament. Uh, but he is the last of those prophets who are making straight the way of the Lord, and his mission was to uh, prepare Israel to receive the Messiah when the Messiah came. And that's what uh, he is fulfilling here, and he is quoting these Old Testament prophets uh, to make it clear that that is what he is doing. He is fulfilling those prophecies. Uh, so John answered again, and he says, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He is saying, I am baptizing here with this water, uh, but the Messiah himself is coming, and he's going to perform a better baptism, a baptism in the spirit. Uh, but John confirms that this one Jesus Christ is the one who his message was meant to confirm. So the next day he saw Jesus coming to him and he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This was a messianic expectation. Yeah, Charlie, you got a question? <clears throat> or a clarification? <clears throat> No, Rowena does. Rowena does. Oh, I see. Okay. Uh, may I ask about if we can take a few baptisms, even if we had baptized when we were a baby? Uh, my understanding of this is uh, yes, but it wouldn't really mean um, the Just same. Right. I've got to be, be baptized multiple times as a believer. Um, in fact, it might be a bit of a confusing um, thing to do that. Uh, baptism itself isn't something that does anything miraculous or special or um, garner to you more or less salvation. It's not a salvation issue. And sometimes um, I have heard people want to be re-baptized because they don't believe they were saved before. If that's your purpose for being re-baptized, I would say don't. Uh, Baptism as a baby versus believer's baptism, I would say, yes, uh, be baptized as a believer because that's a conscious choice that you as an individual make as a disciple um, of Jesus. So I would say if you were baptized as a baby, uh, I mean, I was christened as a baby, which is kind of the same thing, um, but it was more a focus of the parents' uh, uh, promise to raise me um, in the Christian faith, um, but um, some would still consider that a baptism, and that's what my Presbyterian church considered and said they wouldn't baptize me as a believer because I'd already been baptized. Uh, so I would say, yes, believer's baptism, even if it's your second baptism, um, absolutely, because that's your conscious choice to align yourself with that message as a disciple. All okay. right. Thank you. Yeah. Of course. Of course. Uh, so he said, uh, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is a messianic confirmation. He is aligning Christ uh, as the fulfiller of that expectation of a Messiah to take away the sins of Israel and the world. 
says, this is he on behalf of whom I said, after me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. This was the purpose for John's testimony of baptism was to confirm the Messiah of Israel. Uh, and so uh, this was the testimony that he looked forward to as well at that baptism. He says, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That points towards his later uh, testimony that was a testimony by blood. And here in Isaiah 53, we see that messianic expectation. It says, he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of or for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. John understood this to point towards the uh, suffering servant, the Messiah. Uh, and this also correlates with Daniel chapter 9, uh, verse 24, which speaks of six things that the, uh, the time of the Gentiles would accomplish. And Three of them are completed at the first uh, advent of Christ, and the other three are completed when he returns. So the are to finish the transgression, that is to finish the law. Uh, a sin is not a transgression unless there's a law against which it is uh, measured. And to make an end of sin, uh, this removes that sin penalty, as we saw in John 2.2, 2, or John John 2.2, 2, that Jesus Christ died for the sins of the whole world. First uh, John 2.2, 2, the whole world. Um, and then to make atonement for the iniquity. That was the atonement, the payment in his blood. Uh, what is coming is glorification, the removal, the removal of the presence of sin. That is the everlasting righteousness when Jesus Christ perfectly converts the hearts, not only of the Jews, but when we are glorified together with him, there will be everlasting righteousness uh, to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy place. Uh, that speaks of his future return. <clears throat> Did that one. All right, but there's still one witness left. And that is the witness by the Spirit. Uh, now, not all miracles performed by Jesus Christ confirmed his Messiahship. But there were particularly three different miracles that only Jesus Christ was capable of performing, being that he was the Messiah. And these miracles uh, we see primarily by the reaction of those people who witnessed them. We get a sense that in first century Israel, they had an expectation of the Messiah being capable of doing certain miracles that other prophets were not capable of doing. Uh, in Matthew 12, 31, uh, we see that these miracles were rejected um, by the Pharisees, but it's interesting the way that they are rejected. Uh, in verse 31, Jesus says, uh, therefore, I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. 
whoever speaks a word against the son of man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him either in this age or in the age to come. Now, again, this is a verse that's often stripped of all of its context and then used uh, for um, usually preachers or teachers hobby horse sins uh, to say that this is the unpardonable sin that you can't ever be saved from. Uh, the most common one that people seem to like and rest on is that this means the sin of unbelief. The sin of unbelief can't be repented of. Well, that's ridiculous because we all start in unbelief. And uh, it's exactly our change of mind that brings about that, uh, that uh, salvation. We've got a question here. Janet says, how about um, to those angry with God and curse the Holy Spirit, are they forgiven? Uh, so let me answer that by explaining this verse in its context. Um, this verse isn't one that can just be pulled out from what's going on in the situation. Um, it has to be following the logic of the situation that's happening in Christ's uh, or in, in the uh, earthly ministry of Christ. So if we go just a couple verses earlier, uh, we see that Jesus has been accused of casting out demons by the power of Satan, by the power of Beelzebub. It says, if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand if I, by Beelzebub, cast out demons? By whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So what is happening here? The Pharisees are rejecting the Holy Spirit's witness to Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Miracles which Jesus Christ could only perform by means of the Holy Spirit as the Messiah were being rejected. So what rejection of the Spirit was speaking of that blasphemy against the spirit was denying the third witness to Jesus Christ's messiahship. Uh, that sin was not going to be forgiven uh, for first century Israel. The rejection of the Messiah was a final rejection, um, and their penalty would come in 70 AD, uh, 40 years after the rejection took place. Uh, those who remained personally uh, or those who were saved personally by faith in the Messiah were rescued from that judgment, but those who, along with the Pharisees, rejected the Messiah were caught up in that judgment of 70 AD. And that is what the unpardonable sin was, was the rejection of the Messiah by first century Israel. Um, there is no unpardonable sin for the Christian in the church age. All sins can be forgiven by Jesus Christ. And that's what John argued for in his first uh, chapter and the second, for the first part of his second chapter, that all of our sins are forgiven uh, or forgivable by Christ on the basis of his blood. But he is making the claim here that those um, who have rejected his third witness, the witness of his miracles, will not be forgiven uh, when judgment comes on Israel. But what are those uh, uh, three 
witnesses by the Holy Spirit to Jesus Christ. I'm only going to give you one. Uh, I'll tell you all three of them. We're only going to look at one in the text here, uh, mostly because time doesn't permit us to look at all three sufficiently. Um, this one is uh, the casting out of a demon, which makes its host deaf, or not deaf, uh, which makes its host mute. Because the Pharisaic means of casting out a demon was to learn the demon's name and so cast it out by its name. But if you can't learn the demon's name because the host can't speak, then it was believed in the first century that only the Messiah would be able to cast out such a demon. And we see that in the reaction of the crowd when Jesus Christ performs this miracle. It says, then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus and he healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? So the reaction when Jesus performed this miracle was different than when he performed other miracles. When he performed this, they asked a question that anticipates a um, this one anticipates a negative response, but they were ask, asking because they couldn't believe it, essentially. This man cannot be the son of David, can he? Because performing this kind of miracle could only be done by the anticipated Messiah, the son of David. So they saw this happen and they thought, this is a messianic miracle. This is something that the Pharisees are not capable of doing. And we saw Jesus use the Pharisaic method of casting out demons when he asked Legion his name. Uh, remember, he asked the man full of demons, or he asked the demons in the man full of demons, what is your name? And they said Legion. Uh, he then cast out those demons. Here he casts out a demon without asking its name. Uh, this was unique Jesus' ability. What oh, did I not do the one from Mark? Uh, I didn't paste in the one from Mark. Let me go to Mark chapter 9. And Jesus is going to do this miracle again to a different man. Uh, but the circumstances are a little different. Uh, so this is after the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, Jesus comes down off the mountain. And let's see. Okay. So I'm in Mark chapter 9, verse, verse 14. Uh, when they came back to the disciples, they saw a large crowd and around them some scribes arguing with them. Hang on, I got a chat. Mark chapter 9, 14. Thank you. Uh, arguing with it. Let me, I'll project this one for you guys so you can see it too. I'm sorry, I just put the, the, the chapter, that what you said, because others want, maybe they can look at in there. They want to see it too, yeah. Okay, I have, I've put it on the screen now. Uh, it's going to be about 10 verses we're going to read here. 
Uh, when they came back to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. Immediately, when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and began running up to him. And he asked them, what are you discussing with them? And one of the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son, brought you my son possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. I told your disciples to cast it out and they could not do it. Why couldn't his disciples cast out this mute uh, demon? Um, he answered them and said, Oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. Uh, they have been rejecting his messianic miracles. This one takes place after he has done it already once before. This takes place after Matthew 12. Um, they have already rejected this miracle of Christ on the basis of demon possession of Christ uh, was their accusation. So they brought the boy to him. And when he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion and falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. And he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood, it has often thrown him both into a fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus says, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Jesus has changed his method of providing miracles. He's not providing miracles to confirm his messiahship anymore because they've rejected his messiahship. But he is performing miracles on the basis of personal faith and compassion on those who have faith. So Jesus is asking him essentially, do you believe? Uh, because it's no longer for the generation of Israel, which has performed the unpardonable sin, but for those who do have faith. So immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you deaf and mute spirit, I command you come out of him and do not enter him again. Now, look at how Jesus did this, because we're going to read on and see what Jesus says about how this kind of demon can be uh, cast out. Notice Jesus does not ask it its name. He does not pray. But he commands this demon to leave the boy and it obeys. Now, let's move on and see his conversation with the disciples. Uh, after crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out and the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him and he got up. When he came into the house, now Jesus has left the scene, left the crowd, and he's with his disciples. His disciples began questioning him privately, asking, why could we not drive it out? And Jesus replies to them, he said, this kind, this kind of demon cannot come out by anything but prayer. In other words, God himself and God alone must be appealed to to cast out this kind of demon. There is no method, there is no technique for a man to do it. Jesus Christ is making a messianic claim here. Only God, God to whom one prays, 
can cast out this kind of demon. Jesus Christ casts out this kind of demon by his authority alone. Uh, he, he has the authority of God because he is the God man. So this, I believe, is what Jesus or what John is talking about when he says the witness of the spirit. The spirit testified to Jesus Christ. The spirit, not Beelzebub, was the power by which Jesus performed these messianic miracles. Uh, the other two messianic miracles, which we're not going to look at uh, today, but uh, maybe at some point we'll get to look at them, uh, was to heal a Jewish leper. Uh, that had never been done since the law was since the law had begun, uh, and the other one. Oh, Charlie, do you remember the third one? I'm blanking on it. The man that was built, uh, healed, uh, born blind. Born blind, yes. The man who John, was John John nine, John yeah. nine, because uh, they uh, they believed that. A child born blind was blind as the judgment of God because of sin, and sin would have to be forgiven in order for that healing to take place, and only God can forgive sin. So Jesus Christ healing that man was tantamount to forgiving sin, and only God can forgive sins. Uh, so those were messianic miracles which uh, required Jesus to be the Messiah, in order for him to perform them. All right. <clears throat> okay, we'll read uh, verses 10 and 12 so you can kind of see the capstone on this, uh, but then we're going to uh, wrap up and, uh, and pray to close. But uh, verse 10, says the one who believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his son. Now we've seen this kind of uh, statement by John many times now in his epistle. Uh, he makes two truth claims, one a positive and one a negative. And we want to keep those positives and negatives without um, declaring the middle of those um, as one side or the other. So the one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. That's a complete statement that needs to be taken as a complete truth. The one who believes has the testimony in himself, that testimony of the Spirit, uh, that testimony of Jesus Christ and who he is, the Son of God, the one who has the Son. Uh, has that testimony. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar. Uh, that doesn't mean that your belief uh, proves or disproves God, but rather disbelieving God's testimony of who Jesus Christ is, the Son of God, um, is tantamount to calling God a liar, declaring by your authority that you believe God to be a liar. Um, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his son. God has given this testimony uh, in his word by the witness of his, uh, of his apostles who wrote scripture, uh, that this testimony is faithful and true, uh, just the same as John is writing his epistle here. 
and verses 11 and 12, the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his son. This was the promise that John gave us back in chapter 3 as well, uh, that we have become children of God through faith alone, uh, that this eternal life is guaranteed by faith alone in his son alone. And this is the basis upon which that life is guaranteed. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. And this again is speaking of belief. The one who has the son um, is the one who believes that testimony about the son. All right. We're going to end there for this morning. There's more to pull out of verses 10, 11, and 12, um, but I wanted to complete the thought at least um, this morning or tonight for you guys. All right. Are there any prayer requests? Um, we'll pray to close and then I'll, I'll take any remaining questions and maybe Charlie can help me out <laughs> with any questions. I'm asking yeah. prayer for my sister. Okay. My sister Gina. Okay. And also for his for her employer. For okay. good, right? Yes, no? sister. To for good, right? Or Mag for good na siya. Uh, I also asked prayer for his for her employer that they can have a good uh conversation and uh, oh okay. Yeah. yeah. And you will have uh, to bless to bless her going back to the Philippines. Mm -hmm. All right. Any other prayer requests? Charlie, we can pray for your paper. <laughs> you got to do it too. <laughs> I know. It's been yeah. how, how many years have you been waiting? Oh. Uh, waiting for what? Yeah, Janet? Janet, yeah. I've been waiting all my life for Janet. Uh, <laughs> 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 but um we married in 2019 so yeah we we'll wait for that so i think quite so long that you haven't met yeah and then there's a time yet oh. approve your visa your spousal visa yeah not yet because hard. Uh, hong kong yeah hong kong but you know there's many problem places yeah but if I'm going to the Philippines, maybe it will be something new. Yeah, it also take, takes a lot of uh, time I, I yeah. in the Philippines. Yeah. But I think this time, okay, um, you know, more on online because we, there's lockdown, right? So maybe it's easy for now. Yeah. Yeah. Completing the documents or whatever documents that we still need to do, but I think we already completed. We're just waiting for the approval, the government. How many years are waiting for the approval? <laughs> yeah, we pray for us that it would be, you know, yeah. as soon as possible. Yeah. If one praying. All right. Yeah. <clears throat> let's let's pray then. Uh, we've got for Lisa's. Please pray for everyone's safety and for everyone's safety as well. Yeah. All right, let's take these to the Lord. And Nida is pray for me and my family too. Good.
Okay, dear Heavenly Father, we, we pray for our fellowship here of believers who are spread all over the world, uh, but we are united in our one faith in Jesus Christ. That testimony that you gave of him, that he died for us to take away our sins, and that uh, he rose again from the dead. We thank you for this testimony that you gave concerning the Son. We thank you that we can fully rely on it. Uh, that he was the God-man capable of taking away our sins. We pray for, uh, for the witness and the ministry of all of these believers in our fellowship, that in our daily lives we're able to bear testimony to your son, uh, and that uh, his sin or that his uh, blood takes away the sins of all the world and that all can access him through faith alone. We pray for the safety of those around the world, the healing of those who are sick. We know that you are capable of, um, of doing that, of putting your healing hand on nations and uh, curing them of the disease that is uh, ravaging the world right now. Um, and of course, I, I speak not only of COVID, but of sin itself uh, mm -hmm. as a, a disease that infects every man. Uh, we pray for salvation in your son for uh, as many as will come before your return. Uh, we pray also for Charlie and Janet that they are able to be together. Um, we know that uh, you love marriage and that you have brought them together and we pray that they are able to, uh, to live together as the married couple that they are. We pray for Lisa's sister and her work situation. We pray for your uh, blessing on her move back to the Philippines and for uh, her boss to uh, to receive that generously. We pray for Charlie and his uh, work on his paper and for myself as well that we're able to complete that uh, for your glory as well, not just as a grade, um, but as something that we can learn and employ in our ministries as well. Uh, we pray, Lord, for your glory to shine throughout all of the world um, at your soon return. We pray that uh, that day draw nearer and nearer uh, as we long for it. We pray all these things, Lord, in your name and for your glory. Amen. 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 Amen.